Your Excellency, Reverend Fathers, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Latin Mass Society's uh, conference today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us here. I know some of you have come um, a very long way. Um, I'm not going to fill up the time with uh, more um, announcements um, and suggestions. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll um, bore you with that later on in the day. We'll, we'll, we'll run ten minutes late until lunch. Um, what I would like to say is, as many of you would have seen on the news, uh, Prince Rupert Lerwenstein died earlier this week. Uh, Prince Rupert was, um, for uh, more than a decade, the president of the Latin Mass Society. I'm, I'm just the chairman. <laughs> um, the president is a non-executive position. In fact, he doesn't exist anymore, but he held it, um, and he added luster to the Latin Mass Society by doing so. Um, he was a man of enormous um, charm, but also very profound faith um, and a very, very active charity. Um, and um, of your charity, could you please uh, remember him? Um, eternal rest, grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. Um, without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce our, our first speaker, um, and I, I will let him speak for himself. Um, Joseph Pierce. Good morning. It's uh, good to be here uh, in England. I've been living in the States now for 13 years, so I feel very much an, an outsider um, there, and I come back here, I feel a bit like an outsider here. It's rather odd. Um, but it's very good to have the opportunity to speak to my fellow English Catholics. And my, the title of my talk today is uh, The Liturgy in the Second Spring. Now, when I was young, uh, a long time ago now, uh, I um, was involved in all sorts of nasty things. That's the, you check out the book. Um, but I had a friend in the north of England who was a political philosopher. And we would argue about things. And in those days, being young and foolish, I thought that the world's problems could be solved by politicians and politics. Um, so we would normally argue about politics or economics. And whatever the discussion was, he would always stop me dead in my tracks by insisting that we define our terms. Now, when you're young and foolish and impetuous, you don't want to be stopping your tracks to define your terms. But I realize, of course, how, how important how, and how valuable that is. So with this, I'm going to be, we don't, I obviously don't need to define the liturgy to a Latin Mass Society conference, but uh, I want to just say a few words about the second spring, as to what the second spring is. The Second Spring really gets its name from a sermon that uh, Blessed John Henry Newman uh, gave um, shortly after the, uh, the re-establishment of the Catholic hierarchy in England in 1850. And um, I should be quoting a little bit from Newman in a moment to sort of to emphasise that. But really the Second Spring is the Catholic revival that, that happened in England in the wake of the re-establishment of the hierarchy, and in particular, the Catholic literary revival. And many of my books have been on, on that revival and on, and on some of the key figures in that revival. So I want to talk a little bit about that second spring and what materialised following Newman's uh, sermon that sort of dubbed it the second spring. So I want to spend maybe the first ten minutes to serve the talk just going over that second spring, that Catholic revival. I've just giving you an overview, and then I'm going to return to the subject of the liturgy 
within that revival? Well, you can say that the, the Catholic revival could be said to be born uh, with the conversion of Newman himself in 1845. But you really have to go back a bit further, maybe to 1798, to the publication of a book called Lyrical Ballads by uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth, which was the beginning of the Romantic uh, movement in England. And the Romantic movement in England is very different from the Romantic movement in France or in Germany or in Spain. Uh, and, the, of course, it's multifarious. But the, in, in Wordsworth and Coleridge, we find people that are rebelling against the Enlightenment. They're rebelling against their initial uh, attraction towards the French Revolution and French revolutionary ideas and recoiling back towards Christianity. Now, in Wordsworth and Coleridge's case, of course, it was um, Anglican Christianity. But in many ways, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, or STC, um, as he sometimes called himself, was uh, a forerunner, almost exactly a century earlier, of GKC, GK Chesterton, in the 20th century. Indeed, their, their, their lifespans are almost 100 years apart. Um, I think Coleridge was 1772 to 1834, and Chesterton was 1874 to 1936. So basically exactly 102 years apart, and they lived exactly the same amount of time, 62 years. And Coleridge was, in many ways, this sort of champion of orthodoxy in the first third of the 19th century, as Chesterton was the champion of orthodoxy in the first third of the 20th. Now, I know we can argue about how can an Anglican be orthodox. Um, not, not, not something I have the time to discuss now. One thing I would say, however, just to stir things up a bit, is that Chesterton's famous book, Orthodoxy, was written when he was an Anglican. Um, of course, Chesterton was a Catholic long before he formalised the arrangement, as we all know. So then, so we have what you might like uh, a gestation period, 1798 to 1845, a 47-year gestation period for the Catholic revival, which is born with the conversion of Newman and the impact that Newman's conversion had on the culture. And providentially... Now, following Newman's conversion, it became de rigueur, it became fashionable intellectually to convert to Catholicism. So you had, if you like, the, the higher echelons of society becoming attracted to Catholicism for the first time um, in many, many years. But at the same time, because of the famine in Ireland, you had uh, a Catholic working class in England because of the immigration in the wake of that famine. So all of a sudden, and of course providentially at the same time, 1845, the famine and Newman's conversion, we have this uh, birth of a rebirth or resurrection of Catholicism in England. So the period from 1845 to 1890, the year of Newman's death, we can call the Newman period in that revival. Many great figures, my favourite being a literature person, was the great Gerard Manley Hopkins, convert to the faith, received into the church by Newman in 1866, uh, a Jesuit, of course, but one of the finest poets of that period. From Newman's death in 1890 till 1900, the death of Oscar Wilde, we have a decadent interlude. And uh, again, we, we could get 
contentious here, but the, 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 the key elements is that in the French decadence and the English decadence, the number of converts is astonishing. So Chaux Baudelaire was received into the church, Paul Verlaine was received into the church, uh, had a conversion experience in prison, um, Oscar Wilde was received into the church on his deathbed, and the other key, key figures in the English decadence, such as Aubrey Beardsley became a Catholic, John Gray, the poet who was uh, uh, alleged to have been the physical model for Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray, became a Catholic priest. Um, uh, Ernest Dowson, uh, a convert to Catholicism, also uh, Lionel Johnson, a convert to Catholicism. So these key figures of that English decadence as converts. And of course Francis Thompson, a cradle Catholic whose parents were converts uh, as part of that first wave under, uh, under Newman. So we had this decadent interlude. And then from the death of Oscar Wilde in 1900 to the death of G.K. Chesterton in 1936, we have what I call the Chester Belloc period, the period of Chesterton and Belloc. And of course, when I was doing the research for my book, Literary Converts, I was astonished at how many other converts to Catholicism were influenced by Chesterton and Belloc. Of course, during that period, other famous converts Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, uh, and many others. And then Chesterton dies in 1936, and in 1937, The Hobbit is published. And the period really from 1936 to 1937 to the death of J.R.R. Tolkien in 1973 is what I call the Inklings period, uh, the period where, where Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are the giants of the revival. So with that backdrop in mind, I want you to keep that backdrop in mind, I'm now going to look at the, the relationship of, of the liturgy to this revival. Of course, with Romanticism, there was also a return of neo-medievalism, because part of the Romanticism of Wordsworth and Coleridge was to leapfrog over the whole period of the Enlightenment and the whole period of the late Renaissance and to get back to some medieval vision, the, the onset of neo-medievalism. And in England, of course, there were three manifestations of that. Uh, the pre-Raphaelites in art, who sought a, uh, a, a purer vision of art pre-Raphael, so before the late Renaissance, so back towards the medieval. The Gothic revival, of course, uh, in architecture, many of the first Catholic churches to be built following uh, Catholic emancipation in the 1830s were uh, of this Gothic revival and designed by Augustus uh, Pugin, who was one of the first converts of this new wave of converts. He was part of the trickle that became a wave following Newman's conversion in 1845. And then finally, and most importantly, of course, from the perspective of the Catholic revival, was the Oxford movement in ecclesiology and in liturgy, out of which Newman came and Newman's conversion came. So I'm going to read uh, something from Newman's sermon uh, shortly after the... Um, uh, what am I doing here? After the re-establishment of the hierarchy... I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. Here we go. Um, 
So this is John Henry Newman uh, in 1850, okay, the year of the re-establishment of the hierarchy, five years after his conversion. A great change, an awful contrast between the time-honoured church of St. Augustine and St. Thomas and the poor remnant of their children in the beginning of the 19th century. It was a miracle, I might say, to have pulled down that lordly power. But there was a greater and a truer one in store. No one could have prophesied its fall, but still less would anyone have ventured to prophesy its rise again. The inspired word seems to imply the almost impossibility of such a grace as the renovation of those who have crucified to themselves again and trodden underfoot the Son of God. Who then could have dared to hope that, out of so sacrilegious a nation as this, a people would have been formed again unto their Saviour? So this optimism about the future that Newman uh, professes in this sermon with, uh, following the re-establishment of the Catholic hierarchy. Now Newman, of course, wrote a couple of novels, one of which was called Callista, a sketch of the third century, uh, going back to the early church. But less known is that Cardinal Wiseman himself, who apparently wept tears of joy as Newman was giving his second spring sermon at this sort of resurrection of the church in England. But he also wrote a novel called Fabiola, a tale of the catacombs. And as regards our discussion of the liturgy, this is quite interesting from that novel. We need not remind our readers that the office then performed was essentially, and in so many details, the same as the daily witness at the Catholic altar. Not only was it considered, as now, to be the sacrifice of our Lord's body and blood, not only were the oblation, the consecration, the communion alike, but many of the prayers were identical, so that the Catholic hearing them recited, and still more the priest reciting them in the same language as the Roman Church of the Catacombs spoke, may feel himself in active and living communion with the martyrs who celebrated and the martyrs who assisted at those sublime mysteries. See, we have Cardinal Wiseman talking about the timelessness of the traditional mass, of the traditional litur liturgy of the church. Now, the power of the liturgy, in a somewhat perverse or paradoxical way, is present in the decadent interlude of which I was speaking. Um, the, Catholic, well, the, the French novelist Joris Colquismans wrote a novel called Arabeau, normally translated as Against Nature or Against the Grain, which was the decadent Bible, described as the decadent Bible. And, and, and the protagonist of that novel is so rich that he can indulge all of his sensual appetites, one after the other. But the novel ends with a, a, a cry of near despair, despair a creed de coeur, to uh, a God he doesn't even know, it's a prayer to a God he doesn't even know is there. So in other words, this life of unbridled self-indulgence leads to a prayer to a God, a desire to a God to save him from himself. Now, Huisman then wrote a novel called Laba down there, uh, which is the beginning of three novels where the protagonist 
is slowly attracted to the Catholic Church. And in Labat, there's a really horrific depiction of the Black Mass. I don't know if any of you saw the controversy recently when there was a Black Mass being celebrated at Harvard University um, within the past week. But that, that Black Mass is not as hideous as the Black Mass described in Labar, because the Black Mass described in Labar was the real thing. In other words, it requires an ordained priest to consecrate the host. Um, and so the description, when I first read Labar, um, I wasn't a Catholic, and I found it horrific then. But when I read it the second time a few years ago, and I was a Catholic, I found it even more horrific. But the protagonist of the novel in being present at this debauch, recoils in horror, and ultimately recoils in horror into the arms of Mother Church. So the following novel, after Labar, is called En Route, En Route to the Church. And Huismans, himself the novelist, spent the last years of his life in a monastery, having converted When Oscar Wilde was released from prison, hugely influenced by the French decadence and by the novels of of Huismans, he read Huismans' novel, Arabu, on his honeymoon. There's something perverse about a man who reads a book like that on his honeymoon. Um, But when when Wilde got out of prison, he heard that Huismans had entered a monastery and uh, stated his own desire to do the same and in fact requested to be led into a monastery and was refused. Um, In The Picture of Dorian Gray, there is, following Huisman's example in his novels, Dorian Gray's attraction to the Mass, to the Catholic Mass, uh, this depiction of of the Mass itself. Um, There's a decadent twist at the end of it, but there's this attraction that Dorian Gray has, because Dorian Gray never converts, of course. Um to his eternal damnation in the novel, but Oscar Wilde does on his deathbed. And there's a wonderful short story, which very few people know, by Francis Thompson, the Catholic poet. Incidentally, I was back in in England in this past January to film a documentary on Francis Thompson. We uh, we did a location up in Preston where he was born, and the, the, the Jesuit church up there where he was baptized and his grave in Kensal Green Cemetery and Storrington Priory in Sussex. Lots of stuff on location. And that documentary is going to be shown on EWTN sometime. Well, no date's been set, but it has been confirmed. So keep an eye out for that. But Francis Thompson wrote uh, a short uh, story called Phoenix Coronat Opus. And in that, it really is uh, a satire against the art for art's sake uh, decadence where the, the protagonist of the short story um, makes a pact with the devil. And the pact has to be sealed, again, through an infernal inversion and perversion of the mass, where the crucifix has to be removed from the altar and replaced with a bust of Virgil. Uh, because, and then he has to sacrifice his wife on the altar to the god Virgil so that he can receive from the devil the laurel wreath of poetic uh, genius. So he sells his soul for art, basically. Um, And again, this is Thompson's warning. But you see that the role of the liturgy, and I wrote an article some time back about the priest 
in literature. Again, the, the, the figure of the Catholic priest is a powerful figure in literature. It would be a whole different talk, uh, which I have given and, and can give. But, you know, you don't have, you know, Protestant past, parsons or Southern Baptist ministers being a powerful uh, inspiration in novels. There's something about the priesthood. And, of course, that something is connected to the Mass. Um, moving on to the period of Chesterton. Chesterton, in his book, The Thing, The Thing, of course, was the church or Catholicism, he wrote a defense of the use of Latin. And in typical Chestertonian fashion, uh, he couched the importance of Latin in paradoxical terms, that only a dead language can be alive. Again, linked to the great Christian mysteries, the language has to die in order to live liturgically. Because once a language is dead, it's eternal. The meaning of the words of Latin never change. Because the language is no longer being spoken. And for something such as the liturgy, of course, the permanence of meaning is crucial. And the slipperiness of living languages where meanings of words are changing all the time and where translations are notoriously awry uh, can be seen. T.S. Eliot said in The Hollow Men, between the potency and the existence falls the shadow. And of course the, the shadow that falls is the shadow of the fall. And this is particularly true of translation. The potency, the power of the original is lost in the translation. There's a shadow that falls on the meaning. So again, Chesterton, with a great use of paradox, talked about how a dead language is alive as regards the liturgy. And only a dead language is alive as regards the liturgy. We should also remind ourselves that you know, the problems in, in the church and in the world with relativism and modernism is not uh, a new phenomenon. Back in uh, uh, the early 20th century, there was a war in the church between the modernists and, uh, and the, what might, we might call the traditionalists. And Chesterton became embroiled in that. Again, 1909, a year after the publication of Orthodoxy, but still 12 years before his official reception to the church, coming down solidly on the side of the traditionalists against the modernists. And talking about it in terms of the philosophy of the tree and the philosophy of the cloud. And I really want you to get this philosophy of the tree in, in, in your mind, because I'll be returning to it. So Chesterton on this. I mean that a tree goes on growing, and therefore goes on changing, but always in the fringes surrounding something unchangeable. The innermost rings of the tree are still the same as when it was a sapling. They have ceased to be seen, but they have not ceased to be central. When the tree grows a branch at the top, it does not break away from the roots at the bottom. On the contrary, it needs to hold more strongly to its roots the higher it rises with its branches. That is the true image of the vigorous and healthy progress of a man, a city, or a whole species. 
And the modernists, by contrast, said Chesterton, did not subscribe to such a concept of tradition, believing instead in, quote, something that changes completely and entirely in every part, at every minute, like a cloud. Now, if this merely cloudy and boneless development be adopted as a philosophy, then there can be no place for the past and no possibility of a complete culture. Anything may be here today and gone tomorrow, even tomorrow. So this contrast between the philosophy of the tree, an understanding of tradition, and the philosophy of the cloud, relativism, something which has no essential being, no essential existence, is subject to change all the time. Um, maybe time for a very quick uh, digression here. I've done quite a bit of work on Shakespeare recently. I've written three books on Shakespeare. Um, but in King Lear, we see... Um, sorry, not King Lear. In Hamlet, we see Shakespeare's engagement with the difference between objectivity and subjectivity, or what we might call tradition, Catholic orthodoxy, and modernism or relativism. And it's summed up in Polonius's famous speech to his son, which ends with the line, I'm sure many of you know, this above all, to thine own self be true. Now my high school that I brought up, was brought up in, in, in London had that as its motto. This above all, to thine own self be true, William Shakespeare. I took that as my motto and it led me into a great deal of trouble. <laughs> I was true to myself, God help me. But of course, what I didn't know, and what my school evidently didn't know, is that Shakespeare did not say that. Shakespeare wrote that, but he did not say that. Polonius said that, and Polonius is a blithering idiot. And in the play, Polonius gets himself killed, his son, following the advice that Polonius had given him, becomes a dupe of the wicked King Claudius and gets himself killed. And Ophelia, who's forced to spy on her beloved against her will, is driven mad by the experience and commits suicide. So what is Shakespeare telling us? About the philosophy of the cloud. And in that play, Hamlet, clearly having fun with Polonius, says, look at that cloud up there. Me thinks it looks like a weasel. And Polonius says, yes, it does look like a weasel. And Hamlet looks at, looks at him and says, or a whale. Yes, it does look like a whale. I mean, the relativist, it's cloudy. It's meaningless, it's formless, it lacks essence. Now, I want to mention something about Ronald Knox, God bless him. Ronald Knox seemed doomed not to fulfil his potential, and I don't think it's necessarily his fault. For instance, he spent a great deal of his life, he, he stopped writing the satires and the poetry that he was famous for in his younger years, and he devoted himself to translating the Bible uh, and into what he called a timeless English. I'm very pleased, by the way, that Baronius Press have brought out a new edition of the Knox Bible. Um, but, of course, it was doomed. And it's doomed for various reasons. First of all, by accidents of history. Knox, of course, was translating from the Vulgate, from the Latin. And you, this, you know, between the potency and the existence falls the shadow. 
Um, so already a shadow's fallen in the Vulgate, and then you're, you're translating from the translation. So the Dominicans now they go, go, go back and they're translating from original texts for the Jerusalem Bible and others. And so these become the preferred English translations, and the Poor Knox Bible is, you know, has, has its heyday of about six months. And then the, the Jerusalem Bible is published, and it sinks without trace largely. Um, of course, there's no such thing as a timeless English. The nearest English gets to being timeless is when it's dead. So old English is timeless, because no one speaks it anymore. Shakespeare's English is at least moving in slow motion, because it's old. But modern English is changing, particularly in our day and age, at a rapid pace. That words that had one meaning ten years ago may have completely different meanings now. So it was an impossible task, he said himself, maybe a preposterous one. But he was surely, at least should have been surely, on more solid grounds when he wrote The Mass in Slow Motion, where he's going through the Mass and showing what each part of the Mass means. And yet even that, of course, because of the changes in the 1960s, I mean, mass in slow motion is, would, would not make sense to anybody that only knows the Novus Ordo. So poor Ronald Knox, very gifted man, but perhaps with the revitalization and resurrection of the traditional mass, we might see a revitalization and resurrection of Ronald Knox, and particularly his book, The Mass in Slow Motion. I want to now take another very quick digression um, into the Anglican sphere, you know, Newman famously wrote a book called Anglican Difficulties, and the Anglicans do present us with difficulties. Um, but we do have the difficulty, of course, of a lot of Chesterton's greatest work being written before he was formerly a Catholic. But C.S. Lewis was very anti-modernist. And when he saw the spectre of uh, female ordination in the Anglican Church, he wrote an essay called Priestesses in the Church in which he said that the priest at the altar is in persona Christi and in relation to the priest, all of us are feminine, even the men in the congregation, because we are the bride of Christ and the priest is the bridegroom. So you see that Lewis's understanding of the Mass and the role of the priest at the Mass was profound. He also went to auricular confession. And why on earth he managed to stay in the Anglican Church, heaven only knows. Perhaps the best quip as to why Lewis, who of course came from Belfast, Protestant Belfast, why Lewis never became uh, a Catholic was given by J.R.R. Tolkien, who when asked, why did Lewis never become a Catholic? He said, the ulterior motive. <laughs> See, I, you laughed at it. I say that, in a, I, I give that joke in America and they all look at me puzzled. Ulterior motive. <laughs> I have to explain it to them. Um, and of course the other famous convert to Anglicanism, to high Anglicanism, was T.S. Eliot. And you know, he famously announced, following his conversion, that he was a Catholic... Uh, a royalist and a classicist, echoing the words of Charles Moraz, that's in Francaise, 
who said that he was a Catholic, monarchique, and classicist. Um, so this very Catholic vision, and again, T.S. Eliot never actually crossed the Tiber. And the reason for that is, was that given by Jacques Maritain, the, 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 the Thomist scholar, when he, he was asked why was it that T.S. Eliot never uh, converted. Eliot, of course, as you know, was born in St. Louis, Missouri, but developed a very Chelsea-type English accent. And Jacques Maritain said that the reason that Eliot never became a Catholic was that he used up all of his powers of conversion when he became an Englishman. <laughs> now, for the last uh, ten minutes or so of my talk, I'd like to talk about the revolution in the... Um, in the 1960s, with the, uh, the changes to the liturgy and the abuses of the liturgy and the response of these great Catholic writers to that. And of course, many of them have passed away. I think we can safely assume where Chesterton and Belloc would have been. They'd probably be at this conference if they were still alive, but they'd passed on. So they, 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 we don't have their voices. But that those Catholic literary figures that were still alive, almost to a man, came down in opposition to the liturgical abuses. I'm going to give some examples of that for the remainder of the speech. The most outspoken was Evelyn Waugh, who wrote The Bride's Head Revisited, perhaps the, um, uh, the greatest novel of the 20th century. Um, again, the symbolism of that novel, to give a whole talk on that, but it's not time, even the name Bride's Head, the symbolism of Bride's Head, the church is the bride, the groom is the head of the bride, the one flesh of the bride and groom. Bride's head itself is a symbol of the church. But anyway, that's another subject. As early as 1956, uh, Evening War had gone to Holy Week celebrations at Downside Abbey. And he was outraged at the, the, the liturgical changes during Holy Week. And these are his comments on it in an article for The Spectator. For centuries, these, that's the Holy Week offices, for centuries these had been enriched by devotions which were dear to the laity. The anticipation of the morning office of Tenebrae, the vigil at the altar of repose, the mass of the pre-sanctified. Now nothing happens before Thursday evening. All Friday morning is empty. There's an hour or so in church on Friday afternoon. All Saturday is quite blank until late at night. The Easter Mass is sung at midnight to a weary congregation who are constrained to renew their baptismal vows in the vernacular and later repair to bed. The significance of Easter as a feast of dawn is quite lost. So that's as early as 1956 with these changes beginning to come in. Move on here. So... War then engaged in not just writing in the press about the changes in the 1960s, but was in a long correspondence with Cardinal Heenan about it, which was published as A Bitter Trial, which I recommend you buy. Um, but in a, in, in a postscript to Christopher Sykes's biography of war, following War's death, Sykes talks about War's dislike of the reform movement. He said, his dislike of the reform movement was not merely an expression of his conservatism, nor of aesthetic preferences. It was based on deeper things. He believed that in its long history, the church had developed a liturgy 
which enabled an ordinary, sensual man, as opposed to a saint who is outside generalisation, to approach God and be aware of sanctity and the divine, to abolish all this for the sake of up-to-dateness, seemed to him not only silly, but dangerous. He could not bear the thought of modernised liturgy. Untune that string, he felt, and loss of faith would follow. Whether his fears were justified or not, only the unnerving, unnerving sense of time can show. Well, I think that the unnerving sense of time has shown uh, the disastrous consequences of the loss of faith that followed uh, on the abuse of the, and the abandonment of the traditional liturgy and the abuse of the Novus Ordo. And even Douglas Woodruff, who Warwick criticised for his, um, uh, his support of uh, modernist theologians such as Hans Kuhn, Douglas Woodruff, in his memoir of war, published in 1973, said this, What did overshadow his later years was the Second Vatican Council, and still more, all the people who tried to use it to push the church in Protestant or liberal directions, which they called, and for that matter still call, the spirit of Vatican II. When I tried in the tablet to bring some comfort to the bewildered and unhappy Catholics, particularly the elderly and the converts, by reminding them that in every century some sudden tempest of one kind or another had arisen to toss the bark of Peter. Evelyn pointed out that in church history the response of the church to these successive challenges had not been to give way to them and that as a consequence of the exercise of her authority most of the challenges had died away so that only scholars know about them. And the poet David Jones, if any of you think T.S. Eliot's difficult to understand, try reading David Jones's poetry. Again, David Jones, a convert to the faith. Um, in 1964, this is his comment. What the dons ought to have said, this is about the teaching of Greek and Latin uh, at, at university, what the dons ought to have said was that the classics were an integral part of our Western heritage and should be fought for on that ground alone, other than merely utilitarian reasons. Our church leaders have even more reason to guard that heritage, for it is saturated with the sacral. It's not a matter of knowledge, but of love. It's a terrible thought that the language of the West, of the Western liturgy, and inevitably the Roman chant, might become virtually extinct. 1964, David Jones. Hugh Ross Williamson, again a, a figure who's largely neglected and forgotten these days, but um, uh, a convert to the faith, a, a radio celebrity who's on any questions, very household name in his own time, wrote, wrote books on Shakespeare's Catholicism and on the gunpowder plot. He also wrote a, a book on the, the, um, the abandonment of the, the, the traditional mass called The Great Betrayal. In 1967, he wrote, I agree with the words used recently by Mr. Christopher Sykes in his broadcast on Evening War, referring to, quote, the old right which he loved and whose abolition by wayward and philistine reform had been a great grief to his last years. I could think of stronger words than wayward and philistine, but I must not be polemical. In fact, Hugh Ross Williamson was very polemical and wrote two whole books on the subject 
um, subsequently. Then the novelist Antonia White, again, a novelist who's been largely forgotten, uh, convert to the faith, well, revert to the faith, actually, known for novels such as uh, Frost in May. In 1969, she recorded this in her diary. The most extraordinary change I've ever known in the church's ritual. Would have been unthinkable even a year ago in the Western Rite, and it was slipped in unobtrusively in the local convent I go to. We now go up to the altar for communion. In the past, women weren't even allowed in the sanctuary during Mass, except nuns, sacristans, and brides at the nuptial Mass. We take the host in our hands, like the Protestants, whereas we were strictly forbidden to touch it with our hands. And then we pick up the chalice and take a sip. We were not even allowed to touch the chalice, even when empty, let alone drink from it. In the following year, 1970, again, in the Mass now, there is no space for silence. I was struck immensely, not just by nostalgia, when I went to that Latin High Mass in September, but by how much it had lost in the bald version we have now. And even the very admirable preoccupation with the injustices of society and the ardent revolutionary priests seem to be putting too much emphasis on what one might call the material side of Catholicism or perhaps the love of one's neighbour, at the expense of the love of God. And even Graham Greene, that original cafeteria Catholic, in sort of Catholic picks and chooses, um, even he, Graham Greene, uh, had a love for the Latin Mass, and in his final years, basically, had a priest travelling around with him saying the Latin Mass, because he, he couldn't bear to go to the, the Novus Ordo. But this is what he said, I personally found the liturgical changes irritating because I used to go in London to a small church where Mass was said in Spanish, which I don't speak. Under the old rite, one could follow the Latin because one had the translation in one's missal. So I was irritated and not being able to follow the Mass when it was said in a language I did not know. Now, it's interesting here, of course, because Green's motivation for liking the Latin Mass is the fact that he understands it and it's irritating to not understand what's being said in a foreign language. So it's not as doctrinal as what we might expect from Green. But um, it's, nonetheless, a very valuable point. Because it's exactly the time when we have a globalising culture, where people travel much more than ever before. None of us understand what's going on. Well, we might sort of follow sort of. We don't, I don't understand what anything's happening in the Mass, when it's in Italian or Spanish or French, when we travel around the world. Whereas in the old days, of course, the universal language of the universal church, the mass would be the same in every single country of the world. And Catholics would feel at home, especially during the liturgy. Because they, it would be like being at home. There would be no difference. So ironically, at the very time when people are travelling, we have this Tower of Babel. <clears throat> I'm going to run out of time. So I was, I, I was going to also read from Robert Spate, Robert Spate, known by some as the biographer of Belloc, but was also an actor in his own right. And again, he comes out uh, very strongly in support of the, uh, the Latin Mass. The latter the Mass was not only familiar but numinous, and we had no wish to barter it for vernacular, which has justified our worst fears. We did not wish to priests to dress like parishioners any more than we wished judges to dress like jurymen. 
We were anti-modernist and even, except in aesthetics, anti-modern. Radical only in the sense that we wanted to get down to roots, not in the sense that we wanted to pull them up. Um, Alec Guinness. Much water has flown under Tiber's bridges, carrying away splendour and mystery from Rome since the pontificate of Pius XII. The essentials, I know, remain firmly entrenched, and I find the post-conciliar mass simpler and generally better than the Tridentine, but the banality and vulgarity of the translations which have ousted the sonorous Latin and little Greek are of supermarket quality, uh, which is quite unacceptable. Handshaking and embarrassed smiles or smirks have replaced the older courtesies. Kneeling is out, queuing is in, and the general tone is rather like a BBC radio broadcast for tiny tots. The church has proved she is not moribund. All shall be well, I feel, and all manner of things shall be well, so long as the God who is worshipped is the God of all ages, past and to come, and not the idol of modernity, so venerated by some of our bishops, priests, and miniskirted nuns. And the, the irony of ironies was in 1971 when a large group of very well-known people, Catholics, Jews, Protestants, atheists, agnostics, wrote to the Vatican accusing the church of vandalism in destroying the traditional Latin mass. An ironic role reversal the plaintive voices of secular people seem to represent a secular David defending sacred tradition against the Goliath-like power of the Catholic hierarchy who had cast themselves in the role of Philistines. And there's an irony. Just go through some of the people that signed this and you'll see Catholics amongst them but by no means all, all Catholics. The people that signed that appeal were Harold Acton, Vladimir Ashkenazi, Lennox Barclay, Maurice Bowra, Agatha Christie, Kenneth Clark, Neville Coghill, Cyril Connolly, Colin Davis, the Bishop of Exeter, Miles Fitzalan Howard, Robert Graves, Graham Green, Joseph Grimmond, Harmon Grisewood, Rupert Hart Davis, Barbara Hepworth, Oberon Herbert, David Jones, Osbert Lancaster, F.R. Levis, Cecil Day-Lewis, Compton Mackenzie, Max Malowan, Yehudi Menuhin, Nancy Mitford, Raymond Mortimer, Malcolm Mugridge, Iris Murdoch, John Murray, Sean O'Feelan, William Plummer, Kathleen Wayne, William Rees-Mogg, Ralph Richardson, the Bishop of Ripon, Rivers Scott, Joan Sutherland, Philip Toynbee, Martin Turnell, Bernard Wall, Patrick Wall, and E.I. Watkin. So again, Jews, Protestants, atheists accusing the church of being Philistine vandals in this destruction of the mass. Now, I just want to finish with Tolkien. Because coming back to the, the philosophy of the tree, Tolkien said, I'm, I'm actually paraphrasing, if any purists have actually read his letters or know, I'm paraphrasing, okay? But this is the gist of what he said. Um, he could not understand the mania of moderns and modernists to get back to the so-called purity of the early church. 
He said because he could not understand why a seed or a sapling is considered superior to the full-grown tree. So you have the image of the church, 2,000 years of tradition. A full-grown tree. He said even if the sapling, the early church, was superior to the full-grown tree, If you chop down the tree looking for the sapling, you don't find the sapling, you kill the tree. A perfect metaphor to end with. And I want to actually end with some words talking about the Blessed Sacrament. I want him to have the last words. This is J.R.R. Tolkien. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the Blessed Sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honour, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. And more than that, death. By the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by the taste or foretaste of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships Love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained or take on that complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. Thank you very much.